different things. Um, I like to identify plants. I work at a botanical garden. Uh, that's my full-time job, and then what I do here at the church is kind of like another part-time job. Um, and so at the Arboretum, we identify plants with signage. Every plant gets a sign, uh, and I've even extended this into my own yard where a lot of my plants are now getting little signs to help identify them. The reason I'm doing that at my house is, number one, so I can remember what I've planted, but number two, for my wife, who isn't a gardener, um, and in case our son Judah would happen to eat uh, a plant at home, she knows exactly what it is and can look up to see if it's poisonous and call poison control if needed. Uh, this happened uh, a couple months ago. My son decided that he was going to pick up a little bulb that had worked its way out of the ground. It was a Siberian squill, which is highly poisonous. Uh, he did not, he just put it in his mouth, and my wife saw it right away and got it out, but she, but we were curious, like, you know, worried. So she called poison control. All was fine. Um, but we want to prevent that from happening again. So hence the signage. But as human, human beings, we like to identify. We like to classify things. We like to give things names. We name things like our kids. We name our pets. We name our cars. Okay, how many of you have a name for your car? Okay, I'm shocked. Not as many people. Okay, almost as many hands went up in the volunteer service. So uh, my wife and I, our vehicles have names. My truck would not have a name if it wasn't for my daughter. Uh, my truck's name is Walter. My wife's vehicle is Trudy. Uh, so there you, there you have it. So if you see you know, our vehicles, you can say, hey, Walter, how's Walter doing? Um, so our, our, our vehicles have names, and we like to name other things. Uh, some of you, you've got cattle, and you might name that one cow that uh, you know, normally would just have a number, but she's got a personality, so... She gets a name because that name helps to identify them. That name gives them a, a kind of significance, gives, gives them meaning. As a culture, we're obsessed with identity. We create identity around politics, especially around politics right now, identity politics. Maybe you've heard of that. We uh, create identities around progressive versus conservative. Uh, we create identity around religious affiliation, evangelical, Catholic, you know, non-denominational, etc., we create uh, identities around white, black, Latino, around other races, and we've even made a part of the person, the sum of their identity, especially when it comes to human sexuality, that we have made that the sum, of the, the end-all, be-all of human existence. Our culture is hyper-obsessed with sex right now to an unhealthy degree. We're living out uh, like, a hum- or like a Freudian fantasy right now, and we're told not to give somebody else an identity, but then hypocritically, we are given an identity by another group that might not like us or agree with us. And so the endless ways that we can identify ourselves keeps growing, it's wearing, and where does it end? We keep dividing, we keep splitting, and our, and our seek to identify and be unique and figure out who we really are. There's talk by sociologists that this tribalism, this division that we're experiencing is going to continue to increase and get worse and worse as we continue to divide and separate, as we lose our shared values, as we eliminate institutions, because all we're doing is finding identity in ourselves. And so deep down, we recognize that there's something to our identity that perhaps is missing. I think that that's why we keep trying to identify ourselves and come up with an identity that's why we like to identify other things, because it helps to, to give us an identity and helps us to relate to those things. But fundamentally, we, we recognize that there's something about our existence as human beings, that our attempts to identify fall short, that is missing. And so we keep trying, we keep, we keep wrestling. And it's fundamentally, I believe, a wrestling with what it means to be a human being. History has played out what happens when we fail to get this right, 
when we fail to recognize what human beings are. You see, history has showed us that there's groups that rise to power, that they label one group non-human or less than human, and that gives them the, the permission to, to, to mistreat them. It justifies all kinds of evil. We've, exper- we've seen this in Stalin's Russia. We've seen this in Mao's China. We've seen this in Hitler's Germany and also here in the United States. So how are you guys doing? We're in week two now of our series called Foundations. We're coming back to the topic of identity. Uh, we started this series last week where we're unpacking what it is that we believe as a church. And it's important for us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're checking things out, to know what we believe. Because we said last week that Christians, we believe some really crazy kind of off-the-wall things. We believe, most importantly, that a man literally died and then rose from the grave. And that's the, the foundation of our faith. And so last week, we began looking at the idea of God, where, who is God, and we, we discovered that God, the, the Christian God, is triune, that is, he's three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to unpack all that today, but if you want to go back and watch the message, you can find it on our YouTube channel. Uh, but we, we discovered that we, that all people, are invited into an eternal community of love with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. And so today we're unpacking the, the second statement that you would find on the beliefs page on our website. What we believe about humanity. See, we believe that all people were created in the image of God to have fellowship with him, but became alienated in that relationship through sinful disobedience. As a result, people are incapable of regaining a right relationship with God through their own efforts. And so for the rest of the time, our time together today, we're going to unpack this idea, this statement. We're going to start here at the beginning. We believe that all people were created in the image of God to have fellowship with him. We believe that all people were created in the image of God. And we don't just believe this because it sounds nice. We don't just believe it because the Bible says so. We believe it because Jesus demonstrated this. And as we said last week, that any man who can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I think we can trust what that person has to say. And Jesus believed and he demonstrated that all people Man, woman, children are made in God's image. In fact, John, uh, the, the gospel writer, said that Jesus was the word of God that was made flesh, that he took on our image, the image of God, and dwelled among us. But where did that us come from that Jesus came to dwell among, and why did Jesus have to come and dwell among us? But for us to understand that, we have to turn to the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. You might have heard it as the Old Testament. So we're going to spend our time today primarily in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, the words are going to be up on the screen. And when we open up the pages of Genesis, number one, we should know that, uh, that Genesis is a complex book, that it's ancient poetry, that it's ancient narrative, that it's ancient history. All these other forms of literature come together in something that we call uh, the book of Genesis, but it's really a combination of all those things. It's not technically a book, but that's how we understand it today. And when we open up the, the first pages of the Hebrew Bible, we see that God is creating, that God is bringing order out of a chaotic universe. That God is setting up uh, things to function a certain way, that he's creating order out of chaos, that he's bringing up life out of nothing, where there was no, no life. And then it happens over the course of several days as the account goes, and we, then we get to day six, and it's the crowning work of God's creation. The creation of man and woman, of humankind. And we read this in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
We're going to pause right there. And we'll get back to that verse, uh, the rest of that verse. But this is different from all the other acts of creation. When God said, let us make. Okay, that's different. Because other acts of creation, up, to, up until this point, God said, let the earth bring forth or let there be. But now it's, it's this communal, this, this relational uh, creation that's going on. Let us make. And scholars debate about who God is talking to. Uh, some people think that God is having a conversation among himself, so among Father, Son, and Spirit, that they're all together creating. Uh, some people think that God is uh, in the presence of the divine council, that God is the God of gods, that there are other lesser gods that God is ruling over, and that he's involving them in this process. I think it's probably a combination of both those, that if God is triune and all three are involved, then they're probably all working together in addition to these other lesser gods. So God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. This word image comes from the Hebrew word selim, and likeness comes from a Hebrew word demuth, and I might be mispronouncing both those because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but they both mean the same thing. They're just different ways of describing how God had made humanity. Selim is masculine, demuth is feminine, so even if out the rest of the biblical narrative, we can see that man and woman are both made in God's image according to his likeness. Selim, demuth, simply means an icon. You might also see it written out, icon, that God made mankind to be his images, to be his representatives, to be his icons to a lost or to the world. And God formed uh, humanity in a way that was different from how all the other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts create humanity. See, all the other ones, the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation new t- uh, account, says that mankind was created out of conflict between the gods, that mankind was created from blood and from clay. But that's different from how uh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Christianity, decided to make man. In Genesis chapter 2, there's another account of how God decided to make Humanity. Okay, so it's showing up up there. It's just a delay up here. All right, so I just wanted to make sure everything was working. Then the, gods, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. So God formed man out of dust. That is, that man was made as a, as a mortality. That man was made mortal, that he was not divine. But then God breathed the divine breath of life into mankind. He's not made out of blood and clay, not made out of a conflict among the gods, but rather made out of love, made out of a relationship that God had among the other members of the Trinity, and God breathed into him and formed humankind. And so let's go back to this idea of, of image or likeness. These two words that mean the same thing, uh, that man was made to image God. And in the ancient Near East, ancient kings were said to image God. They would make an idol of that king, and that idol would be called the image of the God. But the God of the Hebrews, the God of Christianity, decided that he wasn't going to just make kings as the icon, but all people were made in the image of God that all people were God's kingly, priestly representatives, that they were given agency, that they were given authority, that they they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Like all the other creatures in creation, these these people were commanded to fill the earth, to rule over creation. 
What's different is who made mankind and for what purpose. God didn't make the animals to rule creation, but God made man to be his priestly, kingly representatives to, to carry out God's good creation to the rest of the world. See, God started it in a place called the Garden of Eden, this place where God's space and human space overlapped. And then humankind was placed there in that garden. The goal was for them to go outside the garden and spread the flourishing of Eden to the rest of creation, to bring order out of a disordered world. And so man was made to reflect God in that capacity, by how they related to creation, by by ruling over creation in partnership with God, to be God's agents, to bring order, to spread human flourishing. And the verse continues, So God created man in his own image. There it is again. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That all them, them were made in the image and the likeness of God. The fact that this word um, image is repeated so many times places emphasis on it. The Hebrew language, the written language at this time didn't have punctuation. So if you wanted to emphasize a point, you simply repeated an idea over and over and over for emphasis. And so the, the person that recorded uh, these words, who's believed to be Moses, recorded the fact that God placed special emphasis on man being created in God's image, in God's likeness, as God's icons. And God made them in perfect harmony with creation, with God, that man is not better than woman, woman is not better than man, that they are both made in God's image. They're both seen as equal before God. And so God decided that he was going to bless them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. The purpose of creating mankind is to bless them and then for them to carry that blessing to the rest of creation. See, we were made in God's image, in his likeness, in order to bless the rest of creation. And part of the way that we do that is by, by multiplying, by filling the earth, by ruling it, but ruling it as God's kingly representatives in partnership with God. I love what Tim Mackey, founder of Bible Project, a scholar, says about this. He says that they, meaning Adam and Eve, that they were made to be reflection of God's character out in the world. And they were appointed representatives to rule God's good world on his behalf. They are to harness this world's potential and to care for it and to make it a place where they can multiply and flourish. And God blesses the human, which is a key theme in the book of Genesis, and gives them a garden from which they can begin the task of building the world. And as the story continues, God creates in that garden and places a tree of the knowledge of good and bad and the tree of life. And it's this, this picture of two trees representing a test that's placed before humankind. The test is, are you going to trust God's good wisdom to bring flourishing to the rest of the world? Or are you going to seize autonomy for yourselves and define good and bad on your own terms? And God gave them that choice. And we see the same choice playing out in our own lives. Are we going to trust God to rule in partnership with him? Or are we going to define good and bad on our own terms and go our own way? And so we believe that all people were created in the image of God to have fellowship with him but became alienated in that relationship through sinful disobedience. As a result, people are incapable of regaining a right relationship with God through their own efforts. And so we see where this this good world goes awry in the next uh, chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. We read this. 
Now the serpent was the most cunning animal, or, or most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. You know, it might be wondering, okay, we were just talking about creation. Now where'd this snake come from? Uh, Christians were, were quick to jump and say that this was the devil, but that's not a category that the person that wrote this idea, this, this concept, had. They weren't talking about the devil. They said this was a serpent. And that was a common motif in ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies where there would be snakes or be serpents or other rep- reptiles, and these things represented chaos monsters. That these were not good or bad. They were just kind of indifferent. And what they did was they would unleash chaos into the rest of creation. And the first readers to the book of Genesis would have understood what was about to happen next. That, uh-oh, a chaos monster has showed up. Something is going to go, go, go wrong. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree or from any tree in the garden? And so there it was. He showed up. He began to question the goodness of God the good wisdom of God. And the woman, we know her as Eve, whose name means mother of all living. Eve responds and says to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. She referred to the tree not by what it was good for, not by the fact that it was good for gaining wisdom or the fact that there was a tree that was also good for gaining life, but she referred to the tree that by its location, that it was in the middle of the garden. So already something was going wrong. That she was downplaying the significance of what God had done and what God had given them. And she also modified what God had commanded. God did say, you must not eat of it. But she added, you must not touch it or you will die. You see, the, the serpent shows up, he causes Eve to question the goodness of God, the good wisdom of God, because up until this point, God had said about everything in creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. When it came to mankind, God said, it is very good. But now the serpent shows up and causes Eve to question and and wonder, is God actually good? Because it seems like maybe, maybe not. The serpent responds back, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent knew that it would not bring immediate death, but it would bring an eventual death, a different kind of death, a death that involves separation from God and separation from humanity, from other uh, created things and the rest of creation. That it would be separation from the wisdom of God and separation from the life of God. That it would result in eventual death. And the ironic thing is, you know, he pro- the, the serpent promises a different kind of wisdom. That they can be like God. The irony here is that man and woman were already created in the image, in the likeness of God. Yet the serpent says, no, there's something missing. See, God's holding out on you. So go ahead, you can, you can seize autonomy for yourselves. You can break free from God because he's not good. And you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So take it for yourself. And so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it as well. The woman saw that it was good, and she took it. She saw and took, this phrase gets repeated over and over as the narrative continues and as the rest of the Hebrew Bible plays out. 
when people come up against a similar situation where they're faced with the decision, are they going to trust God's wisdom or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and bad on their own terms and make their own wisdom? It's this idea of see and take that they see something and they take it for themselves instead of seeing something, recognizing its goodness and trusting that God will provide. They saw and took, saw and took, and it's something that we, we play out over and over in our own lives that we see things that look good to us and so we take them, whether it's a physical object or an idea that, that is appealing that we like and so we take that for ourselves. We, we come up with our own wisdom, our own way. And the question is, are we going to trust God or trust in our own ability to define good and bad? And immediately we have a crack that enters into creation. And then the eyes of both of them were opened And they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They immediately became aware of their vulnerability. They also would have immediately known that they were not like God, that something was was different, that they did not gain the wisdom that the serpent had promised. They did not become divine as the serpent had promised. You can't become divine by disobeying the wisdom of God. Later, authors of scripture would go on to write that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that trusting God is the beginning of wisdom, not disobeying him. So mistrust and alienation entered into their relationship with one another, but also their relationship with God. See, later on in the next sentence, God shows up and he's in the Garden of Eden looking for man and woman, and man and woman decided that they were going to hide from God. When God asks them what happened, they lie. And that death that the serpent said would not happen had it entered. There is now separation between God and man, a separation between man and one another, and separation between man and creation. And we call that sin. That sin is spiritual, physical death. That blessing that was supposed to come from creation, that God had promised, is now going to come through pain and struggle. That children, the blessing of children that God had promised will now come into the world of pain and suffering. Now, the conceiving of children would not be the, the life-giving thing that it's meant to be, but it might be through, um, through oppressive circumstances. That man and woman, that they would still rule over creation, but instead of doing it how God intended, they would do it in a broken and a cracked way. That the image of God was still there, but it was now cracked. That they were cracked icons, cracked images. And the rest of the, the biblical narrative begins to play this out. Immediately after this story, we see the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's kids. Cain decides that he's going to kill Abel. We could go on and on and on. It's just this downward spiral of seeing and taking, seeing and taking, defining good and bad on our own terms. We see something that looks good. We take it for ourselves. Again, we call this idea sin, but God loved his image bearers so much, his cracked icons so much, that he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be the perfect example of what humanity is supposed to be. As the Apostle Paul and the New Testament would go on to write, that Jesus is the true and better Adam. That he is the the perfect representation of what mankind was supposed to be. That he did not sin, but he lived out what we were supposed to be. He represented a right relationship between God. He represented a right relationship that we were supposed to have with other human beings and a right relationship with creation. You see, what we see and hear in Jesus Christ is what God intended for human beings. 
And Christians, we believe that Jesus showed us what we were supposed to be and that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, to restore that image that was lost when sin entered the world. When we decided to go our own ways, when we saw and we took, we we decided to define good and bad on our own terms. Jesus said, I am coming to rescue you. Sin is not our primary identity. Identity is image of God. And for those of you with kids, you might beg to differ because young kids, and we're in that stage now, you, you just are baffled because you're like, I did not teach you to do that. I didn't teach you to say no. You just came out. You just know how to do that. But kids come out. They're born into the world, and we love them immediately. We're enamored with them. And we could say about them, you are good, as our Heavenly Father said when he created mankind, that he said, it is good. It is very good that we are made as God's images. And God said that humanity was good. Yes, we are cracked images of what we were supposed to be, but God says we are good. And we live in this tension that we believe that humans are capable of doing an incredible amount of good, but we're also capable of doing incredible amounts of evil. And so often we end up unleashing evil on the world that God has created instead of bringing about the goodness that God desires us to live out. And these two things are intention. And perhaps you're here today and you maybe you were told that you are bad, that you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're sinful. And while that's true, that's partially, that's only a partial truth because God says you are good. You are my image bearer. You are my image bearer first. You know, we believe that God created us in our mother's womb, as the psalmist says. And in your mother's womb, God did not say you are bad, you are bad. No, he said you are good. That you have the goodness of God inside of you that you are made in God's image, that you have incredible value, you were made in the likeness of God, that we were made to represent God to our world. And this has profound implications when we begin to grasp this, that every human being that we come face to face with is an image bearer of God, of our King. You see, failure to, to not understand this plays out in horrible ways, in dehumanizing people and, and justifying all kinds of evil over them allowing uh, people to be destroyed. It also has implications for how we are supposed to rule over creation. See, so often when it comes to creation, we think that we are God, that we get to exploit and pillage creation, but God wants us to be in partnership with him, use his wisdom to bring about flourishing for creation. Because God also said about creation, it's good. Yes, it's, it's fallen just like humanity, it's cracked, but it is still good. And I love what Scott McKnight, an author and theologian, says when it comes to this relationship between humans and image bearers as God's kingly rulers in creation. Scott says this. He says, instead of seeing humans first and foremost as sinners, we need to see them as icons of God, created to relate to God and to relate to others and to govern the world as icons. The fall affects each of the previous, our relation to God, our relation to others, and our relation to the world. Humans then are cracked icons. And there is all the difference in the world in depicting humans as simply sinners and seeing sinfulness as a condition and behavior of a cracked icon. You see, humans sin, but their sin is a sin of an icon. They can't be defined by their sin until they are seen as icons. So we believe that all people are made in the image and the likeness of God. That is our primary identity. No matter how we identify ourselves, how other people identify us, we have an identity that comes from outside of us. 
that can't be taken away. So often we try to identify ourselves by something within us, by a characteristic. But those things can be taken away and are taken away immediately when somebody disagrees with you or doesn't like you. But the image of God is our primary identity. It can't be taken away because it comes from outside of us. And again, this has profound implications when we begin to grasp this. And if you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're watching online, we can all begin to live out this wisdom that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. That everyone that we interact with is an image bearer of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. That we don't get to dehumanize them. We don't get to strip their identity from them, but rather we get to to help them to see that they are made in God's image, whether they see it or not. And so if you're here today, you're a student, what would it look like if you treated the kids at school, the kids in your class, the kids on your team that maybe you don't like as if they were made in God's image? If you're a teacher and you're here today, you're watching online, what would it look like if you treated every kid as if they were made in the image of God, but also the parents of those kids, especially that one parent? And you probably think of that parent that I'm talking about. What would it look like if you treated them as if they were made in the image of God because they are made in the image of God? What would it look like if you treated the patients that you care for on a regular basis as if they were made in the image of God? Or your coworkers as if they were made in the image of God? Especially those ones that are hard to get along with, those difficult coworkers. What would it look like if you treated them as if they were made in God's image? What would it look like if you treated the former president and the current president as if they were made in the image of God? Republicans, Democrats, as if they were also made in the image of God, that that was their primary identity, not identity politics. What would that look like if we treated people like they were made in the image of God? Because that's what God says about them. And if we're going to follow Jesus, imitate Jesus, and be the people that God has created us and designed us to image, then that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to treat people that way. We don't get to strip them of their humanity, whether we agree with them or not. And like I said earlier, when we fail to recognize this, it justifies all kinds of evil behavior, dehumanizing groups of people. But as Christians, we're not allowed to join in that. We know better. Yes, we are cracked icons, cracked pictures of what we are supposed to be, but we believe that everyone is. That everyone is, is an image of God and everyone has an image of God that is cracked. That is not what it's supposed to be. That God never took away that image. When sin entered the world and sin entered our lives, God did not say, I'm taking my image away from you. God says, no, I'm coming to rescue you because I believe that that image is good, that it's worth redeeming and making new. And this foundational truth that everyone is made in the image of God treats or changes how we treat and how we look at people. And we must recognize that as followers of Jesus, that we're not perfect either. Yes, God is doing a new work that he's restoring that image that was cracked, but we're not there. That fellow followers of Jesus aren't there either. It's popular today to bash other Christians, especially those with a platform, whenever they make mistakes and not want to extend the same grace that God is wanting to show them. But we have to remember that they are also image bearers that God did not take his image away from them, that we are also cracked icons just like them. It means, as the uh, Dutch theologian Anthony Hokema says, that we must never forget 
that while they, that is believers, are in this present life, they are genuinely new, but not yet totally new. They are incomplete new persons. That's what we, what we all are. That Christ came to redeem that which was lost the fall. And he is doing a new work. We are being redeemed, but yet we are not totally new. We are not totally new. And so that means then that we love our neighbor, not because we find him so lovable, but because God loved him first. And God says, you're my child. I love you. You're made in my image, and I'm coming to rescue you. So let's start giving that identity to people. Image bearer, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Because we believe that all people are created in the image of God to have fellowship with him, but became alienated in that relationship through sinful disobedience. As a result, people are incapable of regaining a right relationship with God through their own efforts. We're going to talk about God's solution next week. So if you come back to join us for part three of our series, Foundations, let's pray. God, we thank you that you decided to make us in your image, in your likeness. It's a mystery that we'll never understand. God, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our fallen state, in our sinful, rebellious state, but God, you decided that you were going to become man, to redeem us, to make us new. God, we recognize that we are cracked icons and that we need the same grace that the next person needs. So God, we receive your grace right now in this moment. Would you continue to make us new and give us eyes to see the image of God in everyone we interact with. In your name we pray. Amen.